They say patience is a virtue But I can wait as long as you do for a change Call me insane but that's my aim Hi everyone and welcome to episode three of Untelevised, the podcast. Hope you're all doing really well. As you know, this platform is all about discussing possibilities for social change and we've had a great first two episodes where we've met four great guests that have told us all about how they're working towards change and what they believe. But we realise that we haven't really properly introduced ourselves and what motivates us. So we thought that we'd do something a little different this week. And rather than have some guests and learn, discuss and share, we'd share what motivates us. And we decided to start with Mona. So hi, Mona. Hello, (laughs) Kazayo. I'm going to be asking Mona what motivates her this week. And then she'll be doing the same to me in a future episode. Okay, so Mona, who are you? Obviously, I know you, but I don't want a rundown of any stats or achievements, the usual. I want you to tell me who you really are. Who I really am, I, that's the question we're all trying to figure out for our whole lives, I guess, huh? Um, you don't, you want to know my sort of star sign and my, <laughs> my what is it like? I don't even know, the rising and the, no. Um, I'm in my 30s, I live in London, I work within, um, I guess, what you might call grassroots sector, um, social justice kind of work. I mean, those are the, that's the sort of headlines. I'm someone who I think is always trying to figure out with myself what that means and what that is and what I could be doing you know in my life that's kind of valuable and meaningful and productive whilst at the same time maybe kind of not always taking things too seriously um, and genuinely valuing the kind of the parts of life that make it fun that make it joyful you know I don't know um, the friendships you have and listening to music and you know all the things that I think are just as important and and often maybe people forget about when they've kind of got their head down trying to I don't know change the world if if that's if that's what you can say but um I mean I I was born in Denmark in Copenhagen um because my parents were political refugees there and they sought asylum there in the 80s after the Iranian revolution and I grew up in a very, I'm realising more and more, um, probably quite a particular environment of a lot of sort of Iranian and Kurdish like activist diaspora um, that was settling in Europe at the time and was still very active between them in like a, in, in, in within a movement and in sort of trying to bring change back in Iran and, and I guess in the Middle East more broadly at the time. And so I had... Um, Again, what at the time seemed very normal, but what I'm realizing was maybe quite an unconventional sort of life. My parents were kind of activists my whole life. They didn't really have nine to fives. There was always a lot of activity buzzing around in our house. Um, And it felt like this really quite vibrant and quite safe place actually, um, sort of, I don't know, tucked up in that environment away from the outside world. Um, And then I actually went to this quite alternative slightly hippie sort of little school um this Danish school which was like a 
I don't know, similar maybe to a style of school for anyone who knows those, but not quite. But it was all a lot to do with creative education and outdoor education and a very democratic approach to education where, where even as a young kid, you got quite a lot of say in what you got to learn and how the school got to operate. And anyway, so I came from a lot of what I'm realizing now are maybe seen as quite sort of alternative, you know, ways of living. And then I moved to the UK as a teenager and yeah, kind of ever since I finished uni and entered the working world, I guess I've been trying to figure out like how to balance that normal life with this other world and what that really means in practice. So what change is it that you want to see? Oh, this can always just feel like it sounds so cheesy. I mean, um, I God, a world where people are happy, like a world where people don't suffer, like, or at least don't suffer because of anything material or financial or because of legal status or because of, you know, some situations they're born into. Um, I mean, really, if you want to get quite radical about it, like a world of kind of complete sort of equality and possibly, uh, you know, eradication of our capitalist system and our financial system and a world which, you know, where people are considerably more compassionate to each other and where, you know, we're driven by sort of much more human values than some of the things that I feel we've come to. I say we, I don't feel that's you and I, but um, things that drive people at the moment that seem to me, oh God, almost a bit psychopathic, really. Some of the stuff that I feel is is what drives the world and drives our decisions. Um, so yeah, I guess... Uh, a much kinder um, and more equal society is probably um, the change I'd like to see. And how would you say you're working towards that change, if at all? Because <laughs> you don't have to be. <laughs> no, I don't have to be. Um, I'm trying. Um, I think I've gone through what probably a lot of people go through when they start to question the big things in the world. And I think in some senses, I don't even remember like a penny drop moment where I started questioning things just because it was kind of around me since childhood. So it just actually felt like that was the status quo was to not buy into the current system. Um, so from that perspective, it feels really embedded. And if anything, as soon as I'm around people that don't question it, that's more where I feel a bit uncomfortable or a bit jarred. Um, but in a very practical sense, right now, I, I'm a director of a grassroots project um, called May Project Gardens. And um, we work mostly across South London. Um, we work with sort of marginalized communities in London, but in particular, um, refugees and asylum seekers. Um, we we when I say work with I think that's always something people are like so what do you do um and that's a good question because it's constantly evolving and constantly changing but we try and provide everything that we feel is needed to make your life again safe comfortable manageable and enjoyable so we don't necessarily have like a certain set of services that we deliver we we try and both offer um, a community space. We try and give out, you know, food if necessary. We try and help people with with economic opportunity if we can. We we try and help them advocate and fight for their rights. We actually just kind of are a space and a hub that people can come to, and then we really, really try and use our influence and our resources to 
um, improve these young people's lives because it is generally young refugees and asylum seekers who are here alone without families. We pretty much try and take, fulfill the role that would maybe otherwise even have been filled by family. And we try and give them everything from compassion to creative workshops for, for the sake of enjoyment, to, to therapy, to access to work, um, just kind of giving them the life that we kind of feel that, that they deserve. Um, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I try on the side of that to do whatever else I can. You know, if friends are running campaigns, I might support, you know, if I can go, if I can go to a protest, I might do that. I might sign a petition, I might, whatever. You know, you try and do, you try and do what you can within the limited time that you have. And then I guess on a personal level, I try and act out these values as much as I can in my personal life, even if that just means kind of having, I don't know, a revolving door kind of sofa policy where every, you know, friend and acquaintance we've ever had who needed somewhere to live or whatever has kind of passed through and whatever, you know, micro and macro level. But um, I think it's a constant battle with yourself as to whether you try and address something very micro level that you at least can change or if you try and fight for longer and maybe much harder to try and influence something completely macro level. And um, yeah, at the moment, I feel like I'm probably a little bit more at a micro level with things I actually feel I get achievable results from, but that could change, I guess. So it sounds like you have a life that maybe some people would consider quite outside of the quote unquote norm or the average nine to five. Can you tell us about a day in your life? What does it look like? Yeah, it's funny. My my life maybe looks more and more like what more people's lives have started looking like recently because of COVID. Um, so maybe now it won't sound so odd to anybody. But um, before COVID, let's say, I still mostly worked from home. Um, that's basically just because we don't have enough money to really be able to afford an office space and maybe because we don't necessarily believe in using our resources that way if we can avoid it. So a normal day would probably involve, you know, getting up at a at a good pace, you know, maybe not till at least nine o'clock or whatever. That's definitely one of the benefits of not commuting to work and not having a boss, um, being your own boss. Um, then I would always have to like, you know, check messages and emails like every person, no matter what you do in your life these days, I think you kind of just end up becoming a professional emailer at, at the end of it. But um, it would usually probably involve um, maybe a couple of, of Skype meetings and Zoom calls. And again, it did it did even before um, COVID. And then depending on maybe what day of the week it is, um, I might be going and helping with some sort of youth club session. Um, so I might actually physically go to like e either our own premises, which is a community garden in, in Morden, or I might go to some of like partner organizations we work with who run, you know, youth sessions. And I would go there to, um, again, mostly with lot young refugees and asylum seekers. And I might, you know, be helping to run some sort of workshop for them. I might be going down there to, you know, to actually just like help cook a meal or do some interpretation, you know, translation work. If they have like a session with a caseworker or a lawyer or something, I, I might be sitting and doing writing CVs with them or something. So I might do something very tangible in terms of like hands-on youth work. Um, I spend a lot of my time driving around the city, picking up things that people are donating to us or that needs to be given to it. You know, during COVID in particular, I was driving around donated laptops to young people or iPads or phones or food or whatever it might be that they needed. 
Um, I do a lot of fun funding bids, um, the bane of my life, but I might be sitting and writing a fundraising bid. Um, we run untelevised, of course. So there's at least one day a week where, you know, I will meet yourself. I'll meet Fazio and we will, you know, do some, we will actually do recording. We'll record interviews with people, you know, we'll edit, we'll discuss social media. Um, and then definitely in between, I try and get myself, you know, I, 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 I do some, I do boxing, I try and go to yoga. Um, I do try as much as possible to actually cook my food and, you know, not buy it out. Um, and, um, and then maybe watch some trash on Netflix just to kind of forget about all of the stuff that I just said. <laughs> so what moment, person or thing has most shaped who you are, would you say, and how? I think it's probably my parents. Um, in fact, it is my parents. I feel like I would, they would probably be doing an injustice to say that it wasn't. And that doesn't mean that other people haven't come along along the way, definitely. But my parents, for me, were the first people I ever knew who literally dedicated their life to a kind of fight for social justice, um, so much so that they'd had to flee the country that they were from um, and live under really, really actually quite... Uh, dangerous circumstances, um, sort of, you know, change their identities and get protection by the Danish state um, and continued my whole life to do that um, at the expense of us never having that much money and then being probably very stressed a lot of the time. I look back now, now that I understand what it means to be a grown up and I'm like, how on earth were they doing the things they were doing, looking after us three kids, you know, managing a house on way less money than I think probably I'm actually earning now in comparison to them. Um, and actually for the first five years of my life without having legal status even, they were still asylum seekers. And then when they got their status, it probably took a while until they got like citizenship. And and also actually they had um, loved ones and comrades that were murdered along the way. And anyway, so... I would say my parents, 100%. Um, they really taught me to kind of stand up for things. They um, they really valued like giving us quite like a varied education and getting us to educate ourselves outside of what you were just taught at school. Um, my mum very much, you know, very fiercely kind of still to this day, like would be the one that I would see fighting down somebody at the bank or somebody at the insurance company because there was no way that we were going to be screwed over on anything. And my dad died when I was 16, um, which I think, you know, leaves its own legacy in a way that's like a, that you kind of want to, what's the word, honour and, and remember. And maybe it almost places an even greater kind of sense of pressure on you to kind of carry on something. And he was probably the person in my life that I felt represented sort of integrity the most out of anybody I can almost think of. You know, he just really agonised over making the right decision about everything and doing right by everybody all the time. Um, and probably was the greatest feminist in my life as well. And I don't even know whether he would like the word feminist, at least not what it's become today, but, um, you know, very, very much taught me um, to, to defend myself in, in any setting and stand up in any work environment, you know, for my kind of right to be there. So of all the things that you've sort of told me you've done and all of the things that have happened in your life, what what's the thing that you're most proud of? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's, it's interesting because I don't know how often any of us stop to really be proud of something. You know what I mean? And I think we think of it as needing to be maybe quite typical achievements. I mean, I having moved to the UK as a teenager and English being my third language and me going to a really rubbish uh, sort of provincial comprehensive school where they had no concept of what it meant to have a kid join the class that was from abroad or that didn't speak English. I was never even given a day with an extra support teacher or a support whatever, whether a teaching assistant or language support or anything. So I'm quite proud of getting A's in my English GCSEs and then in my A-levels. Um, I guess that's maybe a very standard achievement in a way. Um, as much as it's not something I believe in ideologically, um, I was seconded into the cabinet office when I was 26 years old um, from a charity that I was working at. and. But it didn't even even quite know what the cabinet office was at the time, if I'm really honest with myself. Um, and as much as that is not where I aspired to be and I didn't stay long, I guess in a way I'm perhaps still proud of the fact that I was able to navigate a system well enough to go to a place like that because not many people like me were there. And by people like me, I... I, of course, I do mean maybe racial background and economic background, but I also just mean, you know, people that have completely different views and are not sort of, you know, haven't set off at this from since the age of like 16 or something to be seen in a certain way and behave in a certain way. So I guess I was quite proud of that. And it has allowed me a certain amount of leverage in my working life, because when once you understand the system, which we spoke to some of our guests about last week, you perhaps are a bit better at knowing how to challenge it and how to try and change it even if it is from the outside. And I'm definitely proud of the work we're doing now um, at May Project Gardens. Um, I, I actually look at the sort of very tangible impact we have on some of these young people's lives, how much they thank us, you know, how grateful they are, how much they genuinely go from not knowing what they're doing in their lives to maybe, I don't know, enrolling in college or something that, and, I think that's definitely um, a source of pride, and I'm, I'm proud of I'm proud of us for setting up on Televised, given that we can barely run the companies that we are already running. So, yeah, I think um, that's that's probably it. I might remember something else once I leave this conversation. No, I completely agree. Um, I know I'm not supposed to be certain myself, <laughs> no, no. but <laughs> it's meant to be all about you. But I completely agree that stopping to be proud and reflect on what you've achieved is difficult. And I think especially in the more grassroots sector, I don't think people do that often enough. It's funny because I actually tell my team very often that because we're always so stretched and under-resourced, we can always think that we should have done more. But especially during COVID and since COVID, one of the things that I keep saying to my team is we should be really proud of how well we've done because we've actually probably grown. We've probably increased our reach, even though we had half of our staff base unable to work, you know, because of mental health or homeschooling or whatever. Um, and the work's becoming more and more recognized because there is a greater need for it in the world. So, yeah, I think I am the one who's constantly saying to everybody else that we should be proud, but it's good to have someone remind me that we should be. What would you say is the biggest misconception about your work, if there is any? 
Oh, I think there's definitely that sense that people have, you know, that it's just so like lovely and fluffy, warm feelings to kind of do something good in the world. Right. And yeah, it is. But it is a hard slog. And a lot of the time you don't see such an immediate result to feel warm and fuzzy all the time. In fact, you might get really frustrated. You know, you might run a lot of sessions, which don't go that well or young people aren't engaging because their lives are so difficult that they don't know how to engage yet or they might take their shit out on you or they might be really grumpy with you or you know you might have to really push at a lot of funders and a lot of partners in order to get something that comes together um you know you might even sort of there might even be something really great happening and it is supposedly going well but it's so difficult to coordinate it and you know something as simple as like loads of people will offer you to volunteer for you but you don't even have the capacity to work out what tasks to give them or to even meet them to kind of you know show them how and then you end up doing it yourself anyway and and so I think there is definitely a feeling and I get this from people that know me or are friends with me but are not quite in this world where they're like oh that sounds wonderful and oh and you know and oh I'd maybe like to do that one day and then you're like cool what's stopping you let's be honest it's because you know that it's going to be probably really tough and underpaid and, and whatever um so that's one misconception and I think definitely I find that when people step forward and this is not to in any way discourage anybody who thinks to themselves I want to give some of my time because you really should and once you start it does eventually lead somewhere but I think people do have this impression that if they say can I help out the first you know they're immediately going to be doing something where they see the grateful smiling face of a young refugee but you might just need them to do some admin like you might need them to get get on in the internet and find the cheapest gazebo they can possibly find or whatever you know that delivers the quickest or something so it's not you know it's not always actually all that kind of uh what's the word yeah as as warm and fuzzy and as people think um i also think that there is a real um lack of understanding in people and we speak about this all the time about the difference between real like quite small independent grassroots projects and like large charities and i think people that sometimes again don't work in it like either just see the kind of do good sector or whatever as one big sector you know or the kind of social sector is just one big sector but I, for example, I don't have a pension scheme and I don't really have like official annual leave and I and I don't, you know, get my laptop provided for me really by my company or, you know, all these things that you could think of, like we're running something ourselves and we're fundraising for it constantly ourselves and that includes your own wage and if the money doesn't come through, then maybe it will be less money that you get one month, but you won't have worked less. Um like I said before, we don't have offices. We don't have a printer. Every time I get an email from somebody asking me us to print something, that is like the every time I go into this kind of like, oh, I've got to now like go out and try and get myself to like an internet cafe or something. And so I think people don't quite understand that part because I've worked in large charities as well. And that was a different world. You know, I still went into a nice, fairly nice building and there was tea and coffee there and there was a printer and there was a scanner and there was a photocopier and there was all these things um and now it's like 
I don't, I don't know where my own life ends and the work begins really, um, which can also be really exciting. It can be fun. It can be, you know, it can be more, much more meaningful, but I think that's a big misconception that people have. I don't think they quite realize how, I don't know what even the word is, rogue, <laughs> my, 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 my job really is. So you spoke just then about a few things that maybe people would perceive as challenges. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you would perceive them that way, but what would you say is actually your biggest challenge? And if there is one, who's to blame for it? Capacity, probably. Just manpower is one of our biggest challenges. Um, also high quality manpower um, actually you know it's I'm finding it more and more as my career goes on um, I really realize how difficult it actually is to find people that are really skilled really committed really have the right attitude really have the right values I mean you might get a couple of those but you don't get them all um, and have the right availability and all of this kind of thing Um, I really struggle with um, like the lack of proactiveness so those might be a lot of people that want to help you but you really have to spell out to them what exactly it is that they should do there isn't a sense that they just think of stuff themselves and just you know take initiative and and yeah you might get some stuff wrong but that is how stuff happens and and a certain level of energy and momentum that you need to do this kind of thing um those are definitely challenges whose fault are they? I don't know, the country's education system maybe. Um, the lack of capacity is definitely a funding issue. Um, there is a lot of money in this world, but um, we don't have access to that much of it. Um, I definitely don't think that it's a lack of money. I think it's a lack, I think it's a distribution um, issue. Um, and then I guess you've got the the big, big challenges, you know, I mean, um, our immigration system, uh, our hostile environment, our government, our politicians, um, the people that make it so that these young people need our help in the first place. Um, those are some challenges and perhaps some perpetrators. <laughs> yeah, so I guess in that sense, and this is a really big question, but when do you think your work will no longer be needed? Because I feel that with all social change work, that's the overall goal, right? To no longer be needed. Um, When do you think that point might come for you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I don't see it. Um, To be, if I was to be really realistic, um, it might be that you might not be needed in a particular instance or for a particular young person, but unfortunately the system will churn out another one or another 10 or another 100 or whatever. I mean, in a in in a real hypothetical sense, the work won't be needed when we have a complete, um, again, I think a complete change of economic and political system um, that doesn't, you know, when we don't have when we don't have poverty and when, when we don't have um, when we don't have anything resembling well, when we don't actually have borders and and you know exclusion from borders and wars and you know i mean conflicts and power struggles and and all of that so that's really big and and i, I as much as i want to give hope 
I also don't want to sound naive. So I, I don't know if I believe that I'm going to see the end of those things. Um, but I guess you can hope that, at, again, like I said before, on a kind of micro level within where you might have impact and that might just be on a group of 20 people or 30 people or whatever, you might actually be able to get those people's lives to a point that they maybe don't need you anymore. And then maybe they can help you do it for the next round. And on that note, what are small, tangible things that if someone's listening and they think, I really want to support that, I really want to get involved in the same sort of cause. Yes, I have a similar desire to change the cause you've been speaking about today. What are some small things that they might be able to do? I mean, money always helps, but I also, again, don't want to just make it about, you know, you don't just, if you stick an organisation 20 quid, it's probably not going to be that transformative. I mean, by all means, do it if you can. If nothing else, do it because it shows a sense of like solidarity and it shows a sense for the organisation receiving it. And I, I mean, I don't know, I can, speaking from our own experience, that the exact amount of money probably doesn't make the biggest difference, but there is a bit of like a, a morale boost that you get from seeing that somebody was willing to donate. And and, and I guess actually, to be fair, if a if hundred people did donate that amount of money, then it does make a difference. So I guess, again, if a if, if hundred of you are listening, then please all donate. But um, so there's an element of just showing like you do get energized by seeing that what you're doing is seen um, and by feeling that people recognize it. There's definitely that. Um, I think people often, and I understand why, think that they need to go and set up something, right? We, we, we hear about a social issue and we're like, what can I do? And it, and, it, and it is hard because we all need to feel valuable in our lives and we all need to feel entertained and occupied and stimulated and intellectually challenged and stuff like that. So I do understand that people might always think that that means setting something up of their own. But there is so much stuff out there and a lot of those things are already quite under-resourced. And if you have energy and time and capacity to give, I really would encourage you to look at what already exists. Um, we're all going to be competing for resources otherwise and competing for funding. And, you know, there might really be an, un there might, of course, there are still probably gaps but really at this stage, I think I would, and especially if you're ever going to set something up, I would really suggest that you've had quite a lot of experience of seeing stuff first. So I would figure out what's near you, you know, what can you physically get to quite easily? Or if you are going to do remote work, I guess, for people, it doesn't matter where they are, but what aligns with your passions, what aligns with maybe your, your skills. Um, and I think being really, really humble and willing to kind of be put to the use that people think they need. I mean, again, yes, I understand that eventually you might want to do work that's a bit more interesting. But to begin with, if people really are drowning in admin, then then help them with some admin or, you know, like really just try and take your own maybe ego out of it as much as possible and see what's needed and I can almost guarantee you that if you really rock up somewhere and you put in a lot of effort and you show a lot of commitment more often than not you probably will become part of that thing and people probably will give you more and you probably will get to you know into the more that meaningful sides of it but it's not going to just happen from one day to the next um 
And then, of course, there's all the things that we all might do, which is share on social media and stuff like that. Again, I would probably just add a little sort of if you are going to share something on social media, it's actually quite powerful to put your own words to it and not just press share. I mean, that literally takes, what, one second, two seconds, even just writing two lines that says I visited this project and I and I thought it was wonderful. So this I've donated and I think you should, too, or whatever is much more powerful than just pressing share. Um yeah, I think so subscribing as much as possible to alternative sources of media um, so that you really do get a different side of the story and also just so that you keep those entities going. Um, and then to be honest, I think that the really micro level is something that people often lose sight of. So they might donate to a homeless charity, but they just walk past the homeless person without going, fine, maybe I could give them a few quid or buy them a sandwich. Of course, that's not going to end homelessness. Most likely neither will donating to, to shelter or something like that. So I actually think that like real human to human interaction is really important. And I said earlier that sometimes it's important, if nothing else, just to kind of give people a morale boost or to show a sense of solidarity. And the more I think we can all increase our compassion, the more that will ripple and show others that compassion is doable and not just doable, but like, I don't know, um, desirable, like recommended, whatever. So I really think that that micro stuff makes a really, really big difference. Um, and don't think that just because you donated to a cause that week, you don't have to actually act on those values in your own daily life to the people that you see around you. Okay, so you heard it here first. <laughs> the best way to create change, in Mona's opinion, is to actually reflect what you want to happen in your everyday lives. I think there's the um, saying, I'm not sure if you'd agree with me, but be the change you want to see <laughs> or something along those lines. So maybe that's one of the mantras you can take from this week's episode. That's it for this week. And as always, we'd really appreciate any following, subscribing, rating and reviewing. We're still new and we're still trying to get out to as many people as possible. Uh, we'd also still love to hear any feedback um, and any thoughts over either on our Instagram channel, which is at untelevised underscore TV, or you can send us an email at talk to untelevised at gmail.com. And the two, as always, is the digit two, not T-O. And if you have any ideas of a topic or someone we should feature, please do send it over to either of those channels as well. That's it for this week. See you next time, guys. Bye. Realistic believer with my head in a cloud. I don't wanna come down from my feet. All planning on start crown from my ground. My ground is a cloud.